What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. And this is the first podcast I've done in a while where I'm consciously recording the video and we may actually use the video So I'll have to get back into the habit of looking at the camera and uh, not picking my nose and doing distracting things. Today, uh, this is going to be a cool podcast, not only because I know you're going to really like the guest, uh, but we're doing this in conjunction with announcing the guest. We have Brian Speck. Brian is going to join us as the new group president, head of transformation, consumer activation and marketing at W2O. We'll find out more about what that means in a minute. But first of all, welcome, Brian, not only to the show, but to W2O. I'm really excited to have you joining. Oh, thanks, Aaron. I'm excited to be here. And uh, no judgment if you uh, need to pick your nose or check your notes or anything else. I appreciate it. I've actually gotten pretty good where I can hold the notes sort of like on the screen over to the the right so I can glance at them and then keep looking at the camera. Um, So why, you know, the nice thing is, Brian, you and I got to meet each other and know each other a little bit over the last few months, sat down and had a a whiskey or two together in Chicago before all this craziness sort of came down upon us. One of the things I like to do with our guests is start with the background. Uh, You actually have a very interesting background, which always makes this a little bit easier, some of which involves starting on Capitol Hill. We're going to pause on that for a minute because we want to bring that in a little bit later. But uh, you have a very impressive background. You were at Weber, I think, as an EVP before heading to Olson. Uh, if people don't know, Olson ultimately became ICF, and then you started a group within ICF, uh, ICF Next. We'll get into all that sort of back and forth. But you were there for 12 years, and you turned what I think was sort of like a smaller, it started off as Dig, that was the, the piece that you belonged right. to. You yeah. really turned it into a powerhouse, you know, winning tons of awards, which we'll also talk about. But let's talk a little bit about how you built that agency to be as successful as it was before making the marriage with ICF and then continuing that legacy on into ICF next. Sure. Well, thanks, Aaron. And thanks for um, doing this. I'm excited to be here and I couldn't be more excited to be joining W2O. I've been a a fan uh, of the business and and of the people uh, in the firm for for years. when we actually, when I was at Olson, we, we shared a uh, private equity owner. Uh, we were both part of the same portfolio of companies for, for a PE um, organization. And, and I got to know Jim and Bob Pearson and Jen and, and others. And I've always been a huge fan. So I couldn't be more excited to be here, um, especially in the midst of COVID-19 to be uh, jumping headfirst here into, uh, you know, healthcare focused organization like this, arguably, I think the, the, the number one healthcare focused agency business in the world. Um, I, I couldn't be more excited. So um, thanks for having me. I, yeah, the, the, um, so the experience, I think, when I go through sort of the progression of, you mentioned DIG, which is really how I then came into Olson through the acquisition of DIG Communications, and then, um, and then ultimately ended up leading, uh, leading Olson, and then we, we sold Olson. Uh, to ICF International, which is a DC-based consultancy, really great company, uh, traded on the NASDAQ, uh, do, do a lot of work in uh, energy environment, a lot of federal government-oriented uh, stuff, also state level and some international, a lot of public sector work. But uh, we built up 
the commercial uh, marketing services business, and it was ultimately, uh, ultimately all came together uh, as, a, as a single entity, 10 P&Ls being merged into what we launched at the end of 2018, early 2019 to start the year as ICF Next. Uh, and I think really the, probably the relevant thread through um, all of those experiences from DIG to Olson to ICF uh, Next is sort of guiding change that really drives growth. And that's one of the things I'm excited to, you know, as you know, I mean, a lot of M&A activity, a lot of uh, new uh, companies and, and great talent and capabilities and technologies and everything coming into W2O right now and, and has over the last few years. And it's, it's sort of change is constant, right? And evolving and growing. And that's, that was really the, that, thread through my experiences at, at DIG where we were we were the 2009 PR Week Small Agency of the Year. We joined Olson. We become mid-size agency of the year, overall agency of the year, uh, won a ton of can lions along the way. And really what we what we understood through all that change was really important was, you know, taking care of each other and looking out, looking out for one another through all that change because you know, it's human nature to be a bit fearful or resistant to change and evolution. Um, but growth is a form of change. And I always said to everybody, if you embrace the change as an opportunity to grow and better yourself, um, grow as a person and grow the business at the same time, uh, you're going to be better off. And so is the business and so are your colleagues. And so we, I think we did a really good job over those 12 years of, of you know, less resisting change and the potential for growth and really um, embracing it fully and that helped us have a lot of success. So um, once we launched ICF Next and kind of landed the proverbial plane with that business, I was sort of focused on further change and further growth and you know that's what sort of led me on to my next um, my next opportunity and here we are. Well and we're thrilled to have you and it is funny because I know that um, we did share Mountain Gate as our investor and felt very much like Olson and W2O were sister companies or brother companies. And a lot of that was the embracing the change. And I love that. It's my, been my mantra and, you know, I've grown up that way myself. I do want to drill down on something because I will be partnering closely with you going forward. We'll talk more about your role and responsibilities in a minute, but you know, awards are one of those things that they're a lot harder than I think people think they are to get good at winning. And that was one of the things that you just touched on, but I've been impressed with not only you, but the places you've been. Talk a little bit about, you know, what was it that, because, you know, you have to walk that fine line. I think clients like it when you win, but they also don't want to feel like you're spending all of your efforts and money doing that and then charging them more money to, you know, to do the services. So what was your secret sauce and, and what made Olson and ICF so successful and dig before that? in terms of winning all this great recognition, both creatively for the Can Lions and then also the Agency of the Year? Well, you know, I think the, the real answer is probably not super interesting or sexy. I think, um, you know, it starts with having great talent. And uh, it's clear to me, we have incredible world-class talent across W2O. So I, I think, you know, our prospects for, garnering more and more attention as we get bigger and grow um, is, uh, is, is very, you know, very encouraged by that. Um, I, I think what, you know, what we were doing and, and, and the great work 
it, it started with the great work that our teams were doing for clients. Um, it was disruptive work. It was very relevant um, work that, that sort of tied into trends. And um, it was very agile, which at the time was, was sort of novel uh, and different and differentiating. Um, but I think it, part of the DNA of our team was to ensure that our work actually had measurable impact and beyond impressions or some of those traditional metrics, but what are the business metrics, the human metrics and measures, the, the, the impact on the world? We had a, a, a mission statement that um, I helped lead the development of that was, uh, our, our mission was to, uh, our purpose really, was to deliver meaningful impact for our clients and the world and meaningful opportunities for our people. And so, you know, it, we did really good submissions and we had some people who I think are, uh, you know, were gifted at, uh, at writing great submissions who had come out of the trades that the, the industry trades that, that do the awards and that sort of thing. So we, we certainly had some foundational knowledge and understanding, but at the end of the day, I think it was really, really great work. Um, simply put, done by really, really uh, incredibly talented people. Um, but it was also differentiating work for the time and, and relevant work. Um, but I do think there was an aspect of it that, uh, you know, that our team that was doing the awards, it, it, these were all people who were, uh, a couple of them primarily, who were also very busy on client work. So it was kind of a side hustle. Um, but what we did was ensure that we weren't uh, sort of the shoemaker's kids with no shoes, right? The classic adage that you hear in our industry. And, and that was, we made sure we had a narrative around being a challenger and being a disruptor in our space. And we aligned the work that reinforced our own narrative effectively in that. We didn't try to submit for everything. We didn't try to chase every award under the sun. We were very focused and knew the stuff that we were going to pursue. And it was stuff that, that we were pursuing in a way that aligned to, to, to the truth of who we were and the truth of the work that we had done uh, well. So um, I don't know. I don't think there's a secret sauce to that. I think it's, it's just knowing who you are and trying not to be everything uh, and trying not to win everything, win the right stuff. Now that's, that's a good message. And I think, you know, you've touched on some elements, but sometimes even though it's as obvious as it is, it is that being choiceful. It is that, you know, making sure you're maximizing the great work that the talent's doing, not overloading them because it is a side hustle, having the people that can do the right submissions. And really that's a good metaphor for life, right? It's like there's, why isn't everyone successful? Well, people aren't all organized. They're not all focused on the right things. They're not all looking at, you know, how can they be innovative? And yeah. one of the things that certainly I'm sure helped you all is uh, you had this guy named Marshawn Lynch, aka Beast Mode, who did a Skittles ad for you. And we won't dive too much into that. And I know we're going to talk about creativity in a minute, but I think it definitely is you had to win that, right? You had to get him as the spokesperson. So it wasn't just like, a, hey, like we lucked into it, but those things all stitched together. And, you know, you've got to have the right people with the right ideas and then actually be able to showcase it in the right way to be able to, to do that. So look forward to partnering with you. And we also have friends in 21 Grams that have won a, a Can Lion from the creative yeah. perspective and do yeah. some amazing creative work on top of great creative work that we already had in-house. So uh, agree 100%. Yeah. Um, let's go back a little bit because of the fact that you had a, a really fascinating history, which I do know that probably, I don't know, one in every five of my guests has a political start to their career. Uh, after college, you worked at the White House. 
Uh, I believe you did some work to support some of the members of the House of Representatives. Uh, you worked for a couple of fairly famous senators and Bill Bradley and then uh, Robert Torricelli. Um, you're as deputy chief of staff. Let's talk a little bit about what led you, uh, headed you down that path. And then maybe as we get into what you're going to be doing at W2O, what are some of the skills and, you know, things that you learn from, from that political background? Well, it's really interesting. So I, um, uh, I grew up in a, uh, in, in the mid Ohio Valley, uh, and families from West Virginia and saw a lot of poverty, saw a lot of, uh, you know, where I, where I'm from is sort of one of the hubs of, of the opioid crisis. I saw a ton of addiction. Um, you know, we, we struggled, we struggled economically. We struggled with, with addiction within the family, um, had my own bouts, uh, as a young person with all of that stuff. And, and when I was, um, you know, fortunate enough to go to college and, um, really sort of had my proverbial, um, shit together, if you will. Uh, I'm not sure what we're rated here, but um, we, we can say shit. You know, we try not to go too much further than that. I guess we're somewhere between PG 13 and R. So yeah. PG 17. Um, so kind of once I had it all figured out and was, was, you know, making the Dean's list and, and realizing I was going to, I had the potential to be successful in my life. I kind of felt like I wanted to do something to give back. And I, uh, you know, and to help other, other kids who were sort of growing up as I had and, um, the friends and, and families that I had seen around me who were struggling. And so, uh, you know, I got involved in politics and, you know, my focus was very much on, I, I, I had the, the realization myself of what it was like to be um, a, an uninsured young person who was struggling. Um, and, you know, it, it really woke me up to the, uh, the challenges that a lot of kids are facing. I, I was always fascinated by race as well, by poverty and race. And I sort of learned you know, how similar the, the plight of a lot of urban African-American and Hispanic and other minority kids uh, was to the experiences of rural, uh, disproportionately white children. And so I, I kind of jumped into politics with this very sort of idealistic view that, uh, you know, I could do something to make a difference. And, uh, you know, I did get to do some really interesting things. I um, worked on mental health parity in the house and, and um, helped to advocate and run some kind of campaigns there on mental health parity issues, patients' bill of rights, some other healthcare related stuff. Um, I did work briefly at the National Rural Healthcare Association and things like telemedicine, really interesting stuff. So it's funny, I'm sort of coming full circle. I haven't done a lot of healthcare since, but, um, and then I was really happy that um, when I was in the Senate working for Bob Torricelli or the torch as we called him, um, was a very interesting man to work for. Um, uh, I helped to renegotiate or reauthorize and negotiate the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act in 2000. So, you know, I got to do some meaningful things, but what I, what I really came to realize was, you know, it, and we see it today all over the place. I mean, 95% was theater and 5% was, was substance. And what I saw working um, on the Hill and at the White House was, uh, you know, the people that had real influence were multinational corporations that were spending, you know, more money than the economies of some countries. Uh, you'd see wealthy individuals, philanthropies advocating for things. I mean, they were the ones that were sort of getting things done. And I said, you know, if I really want to do good works in the world, I need to get to know those people and work with them. So that's what led me to, um, to Weber Shanwick and IPG and, and all the things that then led to the Diggles and experience 
uh, ICF experience that we talked about. So, but I'll tell you, you asked about the relevance of that. Uh, you know, to me, it's less about the policy aspects, which are certainly important. But but what I learned, I, I had a, a real kick in the head when I first got to into the agency world and I went to a, a, an integrated agency team, an IAT meeting for a brand that, um, this was at Interpublic and, and there were several Interpublic agencies around the table. And, um, you know, I had been a campaign manager, I had been a deputy chief of staff and a, and a senior strategist. Um, I hadn't been sort of a press secretary or just a, just a PR guy, if you will. And I was so fascinated by this construct that, the, that in every instance, no matter the situation, the creative agency or the creative lead led the entire engagement and sort of all the ideation and strategy. And I, I found that to be really interesting. And I think the world we're living in today, now we're seeing that, you know, no longer is it about a 30 second ad being the anchor or the platform creative piece in every instance. There are certainly cases where they are. And I think that's where you need that sort of traditional creative mentality to at least be the tip of the spear. But what I see is increasingly it is more like a real integrated campaign mentality that you have to take. And that's why, you know, to me, the most important thing in running a campaign like that is historically was sort of polling and that sort of thing. Now it's and segmentation. Now it's data and analytics. And it's one of the things that I've always admired about W2O is a genuine commitment to data and analytics that I believe can effectively coexist and in fact can make world-class powerful creative far better than it than it used to be so in whatever form it doesn't need to be a 30 second ad again it's it's how you bring it to life it could be a film you know we we see with with svod and some of the the, the ways channels are changing and with 5g coming and that sort of thing there's tremendous opportunity for really incredible creative work to be done um, and the power of data and analytics to inform that and make it better is really really exciting yeah, I mean, in the one of the analogies I like to make, and I always feel bad because I, I know we're told not to make sports analogies, but it is a book, and it's by a fairly famous author, Moneyball, right? It's about Billy Bean, who's the general manager of the Oakland A's. I live near Oakland, so I feel like there's a connectivity. I'm jonesing for some baseball right now. Um, sounds like we may actually get some come July, which would be nice. But uh, the story I know, the story here is that the Oakland A's, you know, they had a $50 million payroll. They're up against the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Yankees, the Red Sox, who all had $200 million payrolls. And he stumbled upon this idea of using analytics to sort of outsmart. Now, the punchline was the analytics were only good enough to get you so far. Like you had to have a mix of the talent or the art and the analytics, the science. And it was ultimately the Red Sox who broke through in 2004 with Theo Epstein, who was a disciple of Billy Bean that really brought those two together. And I think that's one of the things I love about W2O is we do have the analytics insights, you know, we have a 110 person team, but then we have this huge digital creative paid media team that knows how to take those inputs and really put them all together, which is, you know, pretty powerful. Yeah. Speaking of W2O and your new role and coming here, uh, we mentioned up front that you will be a group president, head of transformation, consumer activation and marketing. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that remit. Obviously, that means you and I will be working closely together on that last piece, but maybe particularly the transformation and consumer activation uh, part of your role. Well, I think it's, a, it's, it's timely, right? I, I think when you look at some of the lessons we're learning from COVID-19, 
um, and, and the kind of realities we're living in today, you're sort of seeing this consumerization thing accelerating, right? And, and the, 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 the digital connectedness uh, of us all and of, of people to health information and, um, and, and that sort of thing. I mean, and I already, I talked a little bit earlier about tele, telemedicine and telehealth and the importance of that, um, you know, mental health, um, the, the ability for consumers to access more information in, in their sort of decision-making process, or as it used to be, you know, in the doctor's office, in the conversation directly with the doc, right? right. Now consumers are, and frankly, there's a whole issue related to the accuracy of the information that they're getting, whether that's, um, you know, in a crisis like COVID-19, obviously, or just about their, you know, Googling certain you know, um, health issues that they may think that they're having and getting really uh, terrifying misinformation that way sometimes. So, uh, you know, this consumerization, uberization, appification of health, all these things that, you know, we, we hear people talking about is it's becoming increasingly becoming a reality. And it's something that um, is going to be a, f- a focal point of my role is helping, uh, helping take this incredible foundation in healthcare that W2O represents and, and, you know, contributing to this great talent and helping to kind of think in the way of consumers and, and, and use some of the tools that we know from uh, consumer marketing, from influencer marketing and some of the things and experiences that I've had and also factoring in the whole stakeholder landscape in that, right? It's because it's the consumer sort of the, the centerpiece of that, but there's also the policymaker piece, which, Obviously, with some of my experience, I understand. And then, um, you know, there's there's employees. There's it, it's it's all of the the different key stakeholders. Um, and then there's the the sort of channels and technologies that are evolving. That that was um, certainly part of what we were doing at ICF Next was looking at how we navigated um, kind of new realities and new channels and and platform technologies. You know, custom technology, all of it. Um, so it's look, I. I I think there are a lot of interesting facets to this role. I think, um, uh, I think in a way, again, I, I go back to where we started when I talked about change and, and this idea of, of really helping to lead change that's going to put us in position for growth, that's going to help, um, you know, help our clients grow their businesses, that's going to help our people grow, that's, uh, that's going to help uh, W2O collectively grow over the next few years. I mean, that's, that's really what I'm about is transformation in, in the, the spirit of, of growth. Um, marketing obviously plays a part in that. How can we take the great, the great work that you all have done and building this brand and, um, and, and putting the business out there and, and getting it to where it's at? And, and how can I bring some new ideas and maybe some fresh thinking to that to add value in some of the relationships that I have? So uh, it's just a great opportunity for me to be part of something that, um, you know, I can tell the people, the culture is, is a place that uh, it's a great place to be. And obviously from an external perspective, it's a fantastic business. And frankly, being in this space right now, there's, there's just nothing more relevant. And, you know, I said to my wife, what could I be doing professionally that's more important than being part of the leading healthcare agency business in the world right now, right? Like there's just, there's just nothing more important I could be doing, I think, than, than joining this team and helping drive that 
kind of transformational change that's going to deliver deliver the growth that we're all seeking. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, I'm excited to to you know be partnering with you on a lot of different fronts because. Uh, while I have led marketing here, I also have played a role in, you know, our digital health offering and how we evolve. And a lot of that started with Jim Weiss, our CEO and founder, and Bob Pearson, who you mentioned, who is an advisor now, but, you know, played a critical role in bringing analytics into the business and, you know, Jen helping us to build the business strategically over the years. And it's really been great. But we are going through unprecedented times right now with COVID-19. Every company is becoming a healthcare company. We used to talk about that be genuinely are seeing Tesla helping to make ventilators with, you know, Medtronic and Gap making, you know, gowns and uh, face masks and, you know, the, some of the auto manufacturers, you know, changing over to make ventilators. And, you know, it's something that we just all have to be thinking more and more about because it's the most important thing really in all of our lives, right? If we're not healthy, then who cares if we have money or a nice place or a good job. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be here and I've been here for nine plus years. I'm thrilled to have you here. I do want to touch on something related to innovation and change. Um, one of the biggest conferences, you know, that speaks to this is CES, the Consumer Electronics Show. Uh, back in January, back when, you know, we were still allowed to travel and gather beyond uh, small groups, you did a fireside chat called The Creative Renaissance in the Digital Data Age. And one of the things that I, I really, it wasn't like a, oh my gosh, but it, it really sort of hit home with me and it was you talked a little bit about that we have an infinite number of digital social channels to push things through, right? And that's good. We have more access and you can get more sort of unique and boutique about that. But you talked about this renewed emphasis on good creative and, you know, part of good creative, even if it is in the form of a 30 second spot is foundational more so than I think it's ever been before. Give us a little bit of a redux of, you know, what you're, you're talking about at that uh, fireside chat you did at CES. Well, I, I think the, the core, um, the core point really was everyone has been, we've spent a lot of time and energy in our industry and, and out in the world sort of in this digital age sort of technology conversation. And obviously it's been all the rage to, to, to talk data and analytics the last few years. And um, to W2O's credit, you guys were well ahead of the curve on that, um, which again is, is a big part of what I've always admired. But, um, you know, now we're talking about 5G and 5G is going to be transformative and 5 and, and I think um, because creative has, you know, there was a lot of, I think, creative resistance to changing that dynamic that I was talking about, that sort of the, the, the really the iconic um, sort of stake in the ground for a brand creatively was a TV spot. And, and there was a lot of, you know, the ad industry fighting the evolution and resisting the evolution of, um, you know, away from broadcast and into digital and oh, digital's commoditized and, you know, it's, it's crap creative and all these sorts of things. And I, I think what 5G is actually going to do is uh, it's certainly going to open up some new opportunities for enhanced um, AI and VR type things and voice but I, I also think it's it's going to sort of rationalize this channel obsession to um, in a way that's going to to really bring the focus back to creativity um, a little bit in a, in a way you've seen this happen with the the streaming services you know there was this sort of confusing proliferation of these services and you certainly have others that are kind of coming into the fray and, and now, you know, HBO and others, they're trying to like push into their own, um, having their own kind of platforms 
uh, in channels that way. But, but at the end of the day, like there's a, there's been a maturation of that. Now everybody's pretty comfortable getting their shows and their films that way. And it's, so you've seen it and it's sort of putting an emphasis back on the quality of the actual content and less about the channel and, and the pipe and how I find it and get it. And I think there's um, a, a truth to that uh, more broadly uh, that, that, you know, the, the emphasis is coming back to creative and marketing services. And I think again, in order for it to be successful, it's going to have to be data driven creative. Um, and I think the creatives who will kind of lead this, this renaissance that I think is already beginning to emerge are creatives who are comfortable, not with just a traditional brief, but are comfortable with what data and the, the analysts who really understand how to connect the data to insights and ideas are, are providing to them so that those creatives can be that much more informed with the amazing work that they can then generate. So, so that was sort of the, 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 the thesis of the, of the talk at CES. Um, and you know, it's, um, it's something I really believe. I, I think W2O 21 grams is unbelievable. I mean, I think the creative work that, that that team has done is, is exceptional. I think there's been outstanding creative coming from W2O for a long time. And I think this is a business that's so well positioned to leverage the data and analytics driven new kind of creative, um, that, that, that the world needs, especially in something as important as human health. Yeah. And I know that was one of the things we were excited about when 21 grams joined us back in January is they wanted to make healthcare, you know, more exciting than a sneaker ad or a potato chip ad. And, you yeah. know, one of the things that you just brought to mind was a uh, mini series they did for a client focused on hemophilia and they got a guest host, you know, a star that people knew uh, they did a six-part series. They brought in other star people that were affected. And it was like, you know, does everyone want to watch that? Probably not. But it's a hell of a lot more entertaining than staring at like a, you know, two-minute television ad that 75% is the disclaimer and, you know, the hold harmless. And, you know, how can we engage? How can we break through? How can we tap into, back to your point about the consumerization of, we know there are all these great, cool technologies that all the consumer companies are using, and this is part of where your value prop comes in, having worked with a lot of them, and how do we bring that experience together so healthcare isn't just a, yes, it's important, but it's like, oh, this actually can be a, a good experience. I don't think it'll ever be fun or cool, but it'll be a good experience, and you know, it'll be as painless and, and you know, easy to, to move forward as possible. With that, I know we're close to time, so I want to do our last three questions, which are more fun questions, and I've skipped some of these recently because out of respect for COVID-19, but I know this is a way for people to get to know you. Uh, I know that you know I want to bring some normalcy back to the conversation, so we'll do these in rapid fire if that's okay. Cool, I can do that. So the first question I like to ask guests are, what's one thing that people don't know about you that you're willing to share? I mean, some people, I guess my, my family and close friends know this, but, um, I'm, I'm, I, it sounds weird to say I'm an artist. Um, I'm a very artistic person. Um, I grew up drawing, um, and, uh, didn't really get into painting until I was a little bit older. Um, but I paint, I have quite a few, at least a few paintings in my home that I did. I've sold some paintings. Um, so I have a very artistic side and it's really interesting because most of my career has been more professionally, even in a creative industry, I haven't been a creative per se, right? I've led an agency that was very creative, really creative people, but uh, I've been more sort of analytical and strategic 
business, transactional, all that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, I, I'm definitely artistic. It's one of the things that um, I'm proud of that, that I developed on my own as a child were, my, were artistic skills. Well, I like it. And I look forward to actually seeing some of your art if you're ever willing to share it with me. Um, no, that <laughs> second question. Uh, I always like to help people fill out their libraries. And again, haven't been asking this quite as much, but any books you've read recently that spoke to you either business or for pleasure, especially given all the time we have on our hands now with uh, sheltering in place. Yeah, I, I, I have to read a lot. Um, I'm actually, uh, I'm sort of an obsessive lifelong learner. I'm, I'm actually in a graduate program to this day, uh, have been for much of my adult life. Uh, it's my nights and weekends thing. Um, working on a master's degree in American history, which is a passion of mine. So I, I read a lot of really not recommendable sorts of textbooky things. Um, but one book that I read a few years ago and reread recently that I think is incredibly relevant right now is called um, The Unwinding. It's by George Packer, who writes for The Atlantic. And uh, it's very much about uh, the Unwinding is a story of, of, it's really an analytical piece about how all of the kind of cultural and societal uh, systems and structures that were established prior to World War II sort of were reformed and reshaped following World War II, of course. Um, I think everybody knows that happened. But then also how that then began to transform and change again in the later 20th century and into the 21st century because of technology and globalization. So, but it's a really interesting, and I think it's incredibly relevant right now because there seems to be, I think there's a bit of an unwinding happening, happening in our political system. I think to some extent, the acceleration of apification, Uber, 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 Uberization, whatever it is we say that healthcare and in a way is kind of having an unwinding and a rewinding and a, and a, reestablishment of its norms and, and approaches as it relates to, to regular people, consumers and, and the like. So um, The Unwinding by George Packer, great book. It's actually six or seven years old, but it's a really, really great read, especially right now. Great. Well, I'll have to add it to the list. Sounds like a good one. Yeah. And then last but not least, and this is the one so many people have a tough time with, but uh, I think you've given it some thought. It's yeah, you, uh, you're stuck on a proverbial deserted island. You could bring one album with you. Don't worry about how you can play the music. Which album would you pick and why? Um, wow. So I can't play it backwards. You could if you want to. You know, it doesn't, that doesn't matter to me. Yeah. No. I, I look. Um, I uh, I didn't I didn't grow up with my dad, and I had a um, uh, I had a bit of an obsession with Johnny Cash. I had this this image in my head of Johnny Cash was, uh, was my, my absent dad. Um, and so I, uh, I have a, a very, I am a cashophobe, uh, I, I cashophile, I guess. Um, I know everything about Johnny Cash. This, and this predates him being, you know, the walk the line, cool uh, obsession that a lot of people have today. I mean, he was an absolute um, genius and a revolutionary, but, um, and my, my father later in my life, actually, I got a copy of, uh, Johnny Cash live at San Quentin, uh, from my dad that he left to me when he passed. And, uh, I, it would be hard for me not to say that. However, I will say there's only a couple of like songs on there of his that I think are genuinely like standards and are the ones I would want to be listening to. Um, it's, it was a historic performance, but if I were going to, listen to one record over and over again, it would be The Last Waltz um, by the band, which if you've never seen that documentary, you must see it. 
Um, and you must learn about the band because they're sort of a forgotten uh, icon of American music. And uh, the, the Last Waltz was an unbelievable concert with Dylan, with uh, Neil Young, with uh, Muddy Waters. It was phenomenal. It was filmed in San Francisco for our West Coast folks who probably are aware of that, um, the folks out there. But it, it's just incredible. I've watched it like five times since I've been um, – you know, at home. So uh, I, I would have to say the last waltz and hopefully cash isn't listening uh, when I say that. Cause it's, sad. I like how you wove the two in there. So you gave the, you know, what, what would be the uh, iconic and then the one that you really would like. And I have not actually seen that. So I will have to give that a listen. I'm a huge audiophile myself. I'm actually in the process of a friend asked, you know, share one album cover every day for 10 days and oh, sure. to think about, you know, which were the ones that were most influential, but uh, it, it always brings a smile to my face because it makes me think of music I used to listen to as a kid. My dad was a big Johnny Cash fan. You know, this is back in the 70s, uh, early 80s. So listened to plenty of that myself. Yeah. We, with that, I will wrap us up. Uh, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, host of the What's No Podcast show, joined by my new colleague, Brian Speck, who is the Group President of Transformation, Consumer Activation, and Marketing. Brian, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for everyone for listening, and those of you who get to see this uh, for watching. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here, man. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.